0: All right, so we are continuing, obviously, in our study of Genesis 1 to 11, and we've been talking about this big subject of a biblical anthropology, and last week, we landed on the focus of man in relationship, or man's relationships, and we, we made some observations uh, about that, that topic under the heading, the larger heading of a biblical anthropology. Uh, we really just made some observations from the text to kind of get us started into what is going to be a more expansive look at um, biblical marriage and family, which really serves as the foundation or cornerstone or building block of human civilization. And and as we see this uh, really taking shape uh, here in the creation narrative, but really want to think about it even more broadly than that, the implications of it from Scripture, from other parts of Scripture, as well as the implications of it in our day and time and in our culture and how we need to be thinking about this and, and really uh, uh, responding to the truth of God's word as it relates to this very, very important um, foundational institution and, um, and purpose of God in the creation of man and putting him in relationship and most formally in the relationship of marriage and in family. We, we looked at some observations and we, we took note of the fact that as we worked through the Genesis narrative, the six-day creation narrative with a seven day of rest in Genesis 1, that you see this recurring statement of God declaring a verdict of goodness, or this is, he saw what he done and he declared it was good. And we see that multiple times throughout the Genesis 1 narrative, but then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, and he has created man, and he's planted a garden, and he's placed man in the garden, he makes a statement that it is not good that man should be alone. So you see a, a distinct change there in that declaration or that verdict, and it's not until after he creates man and, excuse me, after he creates a woman and brings her and presents her to man, and man affirms what God had done in providing for him a helpmate like unto him, a suitable helpmate, a suitable helper like unto him, created out of his side, that he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and there's God's declaration or confirmation of this in and the sort of the the marriage uh, statement, the marriage declaration there, that a man will leave his family, his mother and father, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then God declares that it's very good. So we zoom in in chapter 2 on creation day 6, and what we know is that creation day 6 concludes or wraps up with this this marriage ceremony, if you will, this creation of, of Eve, who is later named Eve, uh, by, by Adam in chapter 3, but it's this, it's this culminating event and that it's declared very good at that point. And then we move into creation day 7, where the Lord uh, rests from all his work. We, we made the observation that, that this is a distinct uh, sort of apex of God's creative work, And that the way that God makes this, another way that God makes the point of this is he uses what we call a living laboratory in bringing all the animals before Adam, and Adam names the animals, and there's not a suitable helper found amongst the animals, and of course this was not some kind of surprise to God, but it just points out in the narrative that that Adam comes to the realization as God sort of uses the naming of the animals as an instructive uh, a way to show him that he um, is going to have a helper that's going to be created for him, and so God completes His work and create Him, creating um, woman in verses twenty-two to tw- twenty-one to twenty-two of Genesis chapter two. And again, as we said, man affirms that that blessing <clears throat> of woman in his statement. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God confirms this this union by making this statement, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then God, in concluding the six days of creation, we jump back to Genesis chapter 1, and we see that God saw that everything was made, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So this climactic work of creation on day six, before he declares it all very good, was the creation of marriage, the union between man and woman. And while this all puts us into this Ideal pre fall state as we look at it, the state of marriage, we, we have to recognize that it takes a devastating turn in Genesis chapter 3, right? And we'll, we'll look at that in more detail. We, I, we might even look, uh, sort of do a parallel study of Genesis chapter 3 while we're talking about marriage, because when you really look at Genesis chapter 3, what you're seeing is the assault on this union of marriage, and actually when you look at the curse. The, the individual curses that God declares—it really is centered on this marriage relationship in a profound way. So, but we see that this this takes a dramatic and devastating turn in Genesis chapter three, from this pre-fall ideal state of one flesh union for life, um, leaving and cleaving, as it's referred to, and yet we also know. That uh, Jesus Himself affirms that that is not something that is con- confined to a bygone pre-fall idealistic era. So we know that that the ideal of marriage, as it is, it is as it is presented to us in Genesis chapter two, is the ideal that is to be pursued and sustained even in a post-fall world. Jesus Himself. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, he is being confronted or approached by the Pharisees in typical fashion where they're trying to trip him up or, or test him, it says. And they're really uh, probing him on this area of divorce, this whole matter of divorce and what would constitute a lawful divorce. And it says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning has made them male and female? So there's your reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then you jump to Genesis chapter 2, which we just talked about. So here Jesus in response to, in a postfall world, profoundly post-fall world, because after all, Jesus has come to redeem the elect. Out of this post-fall situation, right? The ramifications of this post-fall situation. And he makes this declaration. He refers back, he hearkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and creating them male and female. And in this marriage union in Genesis chapter 2, a uh, the, uh, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So... We know that marriage and the ideal of marriage that is put forward in Genesis chapter 2 is not something that is just too bad, so sad, those days are over. It is still the ideal. It is still God's best. It is still God's design for the foundations of human relationship. Now, sadly, we have to acknowledge, if we're going to be realistic, that marriage is in dramatic and devastating decline in our country in particular. Um, and I'm going to spend some time today, and I'm gonna, I, I, if you'll just bear with me, this is going to be kind of a, an introduction to the broader study of marriage springing out from this, this focus in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading quite a bit of some statistical facts and some sort of some commentary uh, on the state of marriage. And, and, and draw our attention closer into the Scripture as we go forward. So just bear with me, but I, I want us to get a, a grasp on a few key, a few key uh, understandings, a few key points as we start our study uh, of marriage and, and really the recognition of, of where we are as a culture as part of our starting point. Marriage is, is in decline in our country. That's point number one. In a Pew Research Center article entitled uh, a record share of Americans have never married, we find the following data points concerning this decline. After decades of declining marriage rates and changes in family structure, the share of American adults who have never been married is at an historic high. In 2012, one in five adults aged 25 and older, about 42 million people, had never been married according to a new Pew Research Center analysis of census data. That's, that's 25 and older, 42 million people. Uh, And in 1960, only about 1 in 10 adults, or 9% in that range, had never been married. So the change is from 1 in 5 to 1 in 10. Okay, so it's a doubling. The dramatic rise in the share of never-married adults and the emerging gender gap are related to a variety of factors. Adults are marrying later in life, And the shares of adults cohabitating and raising children outside of marriage have increased significantly. The median age at first marriage is now 27 for women and 29 for men, up from 20 for women and 23 for men in 1960. About a quarter, 24%, of never married young adults ages 25 to 34 are living with a partner, according to Pew research analysis of current population survey data. Recent survey data from the Pew Research Center finds a public that is deeply divided over the role marriage plays in society. Survey respondents were asked which of the following statements came closer to their own views: Society is better off if people make marriage and have, and if make marriage and having children a priority, or society is just as well off if people have priorities other than marriage and children. So, those are the two questions that were asked. Some 46% of adults chose the first statement, in other words, affirming marriage and raising of children, while 50% chose the second. So just statistical data confirms that 50% of respondents would say it's not that important. So marriage is in decline, and an evidence of that is that people are not getting married as young as they used to. More people are cohabitating as an alternative raising children even in, in that kind of environment. And, and really, when, when, when asked a question to compare the value of marriage versus not of, of the, the lack of value of marriage, uh, 50% are saying, it's just not, not so important. Now, I have a question for you guys. In light of what we've been studying for the last number of weeks, I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been studying in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, What would you say points, uh, what would you point to, I should say, as a primary contributor or maybe primary contributors, multiple contributors, to this this disintegration of marriage? In light of Genesis 1 and 2 and what we've been studying, what might be a contributor to that, that disintegration of marriage in our culture in particular? OK, feminism, what, what might give rise to that? So, changing, a changing view of a woman's role and priority and what they can or can't do or should or shouldn't do might be a way to, to describe that in a broad way. What, what, what else? Um, the sanctity of the marriage been destroyed. Okay. So, it just doesn't really mean as much. And we'll, there's some things I'm going to read to you in a moment that will completely affirm that. In a huge way. So there's just no it's not certainly not viewed as as a sacred vow that's being taken. Any other thoughts? That comes with like kind of the sexual liberty of the sixties and how it's of given rise to the baby boomer generation being one of well, if you're not getting enjoyment here, then there's something else out there that can give you it. So you just, you know, move on to whatever keeps you happy. Yeah, so if you if you look at it from a, a sort of a sociological uh, perspective, and you look at the sexual revolution of the 60s, and you see that, um, that 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 sort of opened the door for a whole sort of liberal view of, of sexuality, really, that blew the doors off of marriage as the sacred uh, relationship in which that should occur, really behind all of that is just yielding to as not just a priority, but as what's most noble, the natural cravings of a sinful flesh. That becomes the priority. I want what I want. I desire what I desire. And me pursuing and getting what I want and what I desire in my natural base, fallen nature is not just natural, but it's noble. It's what's best. It's what's, it's what's right. It's, it's the thing. And it becomes a cultural movement when it, when it gets to that point think about think about evolution and naturalism as as a very comprehensive overarching and underpinning philosophical framework, and what that might do to the institution of marriage. What would be implications of an evolutionary naturalistic evolutionary mindset to marriage as it's described in Genesis 1 and 2. want to commit to that. Okay. So kind of like more of a just a, instead of an outward, an outward look towards God's creation, it becomes an inward look to the self. Okay. What does an evolutionary model do to uh gender distinction? It really seen everything Yeah. It 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 just converts it to a purely biological Reality, but there's nothing, there's nothing uh, of essence that is distinct in the genders. It's just different biology, a different evolutionary, you know, mutation, if you will. Yeah, which is this self-centered, almost like a survival of the fittest kind of mentality as well. You know. Um, so some people, some people in marriage relationships might think that I've got to go to someone else just to survive. Actually, I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration of the notion of survival of the fittest, but same same underlying principle. Are you gonna say something? Well, I'll say- Mm-hmm. as many wives as you could have or babies as you could have however you can have them, but then protect them. That's why they say marriage even came about. Evolutionists says that marriage was a construct of that. Yeah. But that's not how society works. You know, many when you start talking about um marriage and really start talking about the decline of marriage, particularly in our culture and in particularly in in Christian circles, it's not uncommon uh, particularly in our current day, it's not uncommon for conservative-minded people or Christian, uh, confessing Christian people to start pointing at things like the rise of gay marriage as a movement, as a cultural, political, agenda-driven movement in our country that has led to or significantly contributed to the decline of traditional marriage. In fact, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for, for really um, sinister aversions to be cast at people who would advocate gay marriage, who would be proponents of it, or the homosexual community itself, and blame the movement or the proponents of the movement for the breakdown of traditional marriage. But let's not rush to judgment too quickly. Okay, Listen to this. In a CNN report... It's an article entitled, Marriage is What Brings Us Together Today. Famous quote from Princess Bride, marriage, marriage is what brings us together. That's how the actual article starts. It actually spells out the words phonetically, marriage. But anyway, he starts off with a little clever introduction from the Princess Bride in that scene with the priest and the marriage ceremony. Um, But he says this, and this is is by a gentleman who, who acknowledges that he's a homosexual in the article. But listen to what he says and I and I agree with him wholeheartedly. He says many conservatives have before now conceded they've lost the argument when it comes to gay marriage. For at least the last few years the question has not been if but when full marriage equality will prevail in the United States. However, as much as we discuss the ramifications of legal, legalizing same-sex marriage, what we don't discuss is the context. What is the state of marriage today? Supporters of traditional marriage often express their fear that if gay people are allowed to marry, the institution will be transformed. The truth, however, is that marriage has already been transformed. Not just in the United States, but around the world. We're now seeing simply the latest phase of a long evolution. That's exactly right. Marriage has been undergoing change for a long, long time. And not for the good. In another article entitled, The Breakdown of the Traditional Family, Why Conservative Christians Should Rethink Their Blame Game, the writer makes the following argument. He says, contrary to what critics might say, same-sex marriage, while it may be a symptom of a cultural shift away from traditional marriage and all that it has historically entailed, is not responsible for the collapse of marriage as a long-revered institution in this country. That blame rests squarely on the shoulders of heterosexuals for whom marriage and the family unit that arises from it has become a temporary arrangement at best, with divorce now seen as an immediate cure-all and cohabitation a happy, less permanent alternative. Even among professed evangelical Christians who tout traditional marriage, divorce rates are comparable to those of non-Christians. And while the decline in divorce in recent years has been hailed as good news, It now stands at 40%, down from a high of nearly 60% in the 1980s. It is a false positive that is offset by failing marriage rates and surging cohabitations. As researcher George Barna observes, quote, "...there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility." There is also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. That said, divorce is not solely to blame for the collapse of the institution of marriage. Marriage generally seems to be falling out of favor everywhere except in the realm of reality TV. So, a la the bachelor and the bachelorette, and they're getting married on TV. Even those, mar- those marriages don't last For the first time in American history, unmarried households now make up the majority of all U.S. households. Younger generations are also more inclined to live together. Where once the institution of marriage gave legitimacy to sexual relations and children, it no longer serves as much of a gatekeeper. This can largely be attributed to the sexual revolution which paved the way for sex outside of marriage, the feminist movement which pushed to legalize abortion, thereby making pregnancy a woman's problem to deal with as she sees fit and the decreased role of religion in American life. Consequently, nearly 40% of all U.S. children are now born out of wedlock. 40% of all U.S. children are now born out of wedlock. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, the number of unmarried couple households with children has risen from more than one, to more than 1.7 million, up from under 200,000 in the 1970s. Moreover, there are 9.8 million single mothers versus 1.8 million single fathers, the ramification of the breakdown of marriage and the subsequent rise in single-parent households are far-reaching and alarming. For example, children living with a single mother are six times more likely to live in poverty than our children whose parents are married. The same study found that children in step-families and single-parent families are almost three times more likely to drop out of school than children in intact families. And living in a single-parent home can cause a disconnect among children between family and marriage. Moreover, as W. Bradford Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, notes in The Evolution of Divorce Since 1974, about one million children per year have seen their parents divorce. And children who are exposed to divorce are two to three times more likely than their peers in intact marriages to suffer from serious social or psychological pathologies. In their book, Growing Up with a Single Parent What Hurts, What Helps, sociologists Sarah McClanahan and Gary Sandifer found that 31% of adolescents with divorced parents dropped out of high school compared to 13% of children from intact families. They also concluded that 33% of adolescent girls whose parents divorced became teen mothers compared to 11% of girls from continuously married families. And McClanahan and her colleagues have found that 11% of boys who come from divorced families end up spending time in prison before the age of 32 compared to 5% of boys who come from intact homes. Sociologist Paul Amato estimates that if the United States enjoyed the same level of family stability today as it did in 1960, the nation would have 750,000 fewer children repeating grades, 1.2 million fewer school suspensions, approximately 500,000 fewer acts of teenage delinquency, about 600,000 fewer kids receiving therapy, and approximately 70,000 fewer suicides every year. That's what we're, that's the world we're living in. Multi-generational marriage and family breakdown, even in the context of the religious community, the professing Christian community, where marriage has become less and less of a cultural foundation, especially for children. And so we have children growing up and getting married and getting married and getting married multiple times maybe, and all this social upheaval and lack of stability and health in their own heart and minds about the fundamental social institutions of our country, and on and on it goes. The breakdown of marriage in the broader culture is directly related to the breakdown of faithful, biblically-centered marriage within the Christian community, and I use the term Christian community somewhat loosely because I do believe that there are many, many, many many people who profess faith in Christ who have views on marriage and family that are completely unbiblical, and they hold to them and fight for them and live in them and operate with them in their minds, and they may or may not be believers. So just, when I say the Christian community, I mean the professing Christian community. I don't mean, you know, standing before the throne of God, he sees all things and knows your heart, Christian community, okay? That's what I mean by Christian community. In other words, marriages break down because marriages are not, based upon the foundations of biblical marriage we find starting in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's why they break down. Listen to what uh, Andreas Kostenberger said. This is from, uh, this is uh, a great book. It's a little small book on God, family, and marriage. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter, so this is going to be a long study. Uh, this is, uh, just so you guys know, he was here actually. You know, he spoke to our church uh, a number of weeks ago. He's actually uh, Shane's um, Ph.D. supervisor for his Ph.D. program, and he's, he's done a, a lot of work in this whole, whole area. He's a tremendous scholar, but listen to how he introduces this book entitled God, Family, and Marriage. He says, for the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms of marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual or societal level, which is what you guys just got finished saying. It can rightly be said that marriage and the family are institutions under siege in our world today, and that with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis. The current cultural crisis, however, is merely symptomatic of a deep-seated spiritual crisis that continues to gnaw at the foundations of our once-shared societal values. If God the Creator, in fact, as the Bible teaches instituted marriage and the family, and if there is an evil being called Satan who wages war against God's creative purposes in the world, it should come as no surprise that the divine foundation of these institutions has come under massive attack in recent years. Ultimately, we human beings, whether we realize it or not, are involved in a cosmic spiritual conflict that pits God against Satan, with marriage and the family serving as the key arena in which spiritual and cultural battles are fought. He goes on to say, "...measured against the biblical teaching on marriage and the family, it seems undeniable that Western culture is decaying. In fact, the past few decades have witnessed nothing less than a major paradigm shift with regard to marriage and the family. The West's Judeo-Christian heritage and foundation have largely been supplanted by a libertarian ideology that elevates human freedom and self-determination as the supreme principles for human relationships." In their confusion, many hailed the decline of the biblical traditional model of marriage in the family and its replacement by new competing moralities as major progress. That's where we are creating a nobility of progress in these areas. Yet the following list of adverse effects on, of unbiblical views of marriage in the family open society upon society, excuse me, demonstrates that, the, that replacing the biblical traditional model of marriage in the family with more progressive ones is detrimental even for those who do not view the, biblical, the Bible as authoritative. One of the negative consequences of the erosion of the biblical traditional model are skyrocketing divorce rates. However, the costs of divorce are troubling, not only for the people involved, especially children, but also for society at large. While children may not show ill effects of the trauma of divorce in the short run, Serious negative long-term consequences have been well-documented. Sex outside of marriage, because it does not occur within the secure environment of an exclusive lifetime commitment, also exerts a heavy price from those who engage in adulterous or otherwise illicit sexual relationships. Teenage pregnancies and abortion are the most glaring examples. While pleasurable in the short run, sex outside of marriage takes a heavy toll both psychologically and spiritually and contributes to the overall insecurity and stress causing the destabilization of our cultural foundation. Homosexuality deprives children and households run by same-sex partners of primary role models of both sexes and is unable to fill the procreative purposes God intended for the marriage union. Gender role confusion, too, is uh, is an increasingly serious issue. Many men and women have lost the concept of what it means to be masculine or feminine. This results in a loss of the complete identity of being human as God created us, male and female. Our sex does not merely determine the form of our sex organs, but is an integral part of our entire being. These few examples illustrate the disturbing fact that the price exacted by the world as a result of its abandonment of the biblical foundations for marriage and the family is severe indeed. An integrative biblical treatment of marriage and the family is essential to clear up moral confusion and to firm up convictions that, if acted upon, have the potential of returning the church and culture back to God's intention for marriages and families. So here's the thing, guys. I know that in this room, and probably in this larger church community, though I don't want to be overly presumptuous, that the majority statistically would be committed to a biblical view of marriage in a general way. I believe that our church is very out front with its commitment to expositional teaching of Scripture and a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. And so people that come here and stay here and attend here and get involved here are typically like-minded in that way. And so when you start talking about things like, do you believe in a biblical view of marriage, the immediate answer would be yes, of course. But the fact remains that we live in an environment and in a culture where that very foundational relationship is under constant assault and constant attack. And we cannot be overly presumptuous that our own relationships might come under assault in a way that we have to really wrestle with and work through. So even though we may all find ourselves readily in agreement with the scriptural teaching on marriage, saying, yay and amen, I'm with it, I'm on it, I'm I'm down with it, we need to be reminded and we need to have our convictions around this renewed routinely because it is is something that is under assault. And when you look at the teaching on marriage, particularly in Ephesians, and you see that the Apostle Paul sets it up as something that is akin to Christ and his relationship with the church, and you start to see the Christian's role in marriage as being one of representing the gospel, really, in the world, then, then we should be all the more inclined to constantly be reminded of and have our convictions renewed in the biblical foundations of marriage. When we start looking at scriptural terms, it becomes very easy to recognize the clash that we'll run in contact with. What do you mean, as a woman, I'm just a helper? Are you kidding me? That's what I am? I'm just a helper? What do you mean, submit? You see what I'm saying, you start talking about biblical terms and you put it just in in a cold way into the context of a culture that's on that has a, an aggressive assault against those kinds of things. And it becomes easy for Christians to to begin to even accommodate their own language about it. We don't want to use biblical terms when we talk about marriage. I mean, Ladies in the room, those of you that are married now or or are planning to get married someday or whatever, I mean, the last thing that you want to do is go into your workplace, your secular workplace, and talk about how great it is to be a submissive wife, right? I mean, how popular is that conversation going to be? So we want to talk about that, and we want to have our, our minds firmly rooted in the truths of Scripture so that our convictions are firm and so that our lives as we live them out in the world reflect those convictions clearly and accurately. As we begin our study of this critically important subject, I want to ask you a question, and we're going to close with this. What would you consider, and again, this, is, this might be considered a trick question, okay? I'm just, I'm full transparency, full disclosure. I'm, going to, I'm assuming that you're going to give me answers that I probably don't have here, okay? But I just want to kind of see, see where, your, where your thoughts go. As we think about a study on marriage and family, um, what, what would you consider to be a foundational passage that we would want to center some of our thinking in, or uh, maybe a few foundational passages of scripture that would just immediately come to mind to begin a study of marriage and family? Anybody have any thoughts they want to throw out? Ephesians 5, okay. Certainly a big one. Anybody have any other thoughts? Colossians three, uh huh? Okay. I'm going to let you do the one on head coverings. Yeah. By the way. Okay. Any others? I mean, these are these are the kind of the the, the big ones in, in the New Testament for sure. Titus. All right. Now here's 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 the right answer. You guys got it all wrong. Okay. Told you I was going to trick you. Um, And, of course, those are obviously uh, key passages that we'll definitely be touching on and looking at and to some degree of depth as we go forward. But as an introduction to the study, I want to draw your attention to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through the first half of 16. The Apostle Paul says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Humility, the mind of Christ, who though he was God, did not consider God something to be grasped. What do we do when we adopt worldly visions of manhood and womanhood and marriage and family? We are grasping for Godhood. That's what we're doing. And yet the Savior that we confess and claim as our own and appeal to for salvation is the one who humbled himself. He didn't grasp. He became obedient even to the point of death as our model. And when it comes to thinking about the interaction and the interplay of marriage relationships, aren't we we inclined to try to work out other people's salvation in conflict, right? The scripture says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll we'll elaborate on that more as we go forward. And then holding fast to the word of life, I love the way it concludes. We are going to be focusing on what scripture teaches about marriage, not what feels right, not what the culture says makes sense, not what seems fair, okay? We're going to talk about what Scripture teaches explicitly and deal with that. And so we're going to need to hold fast to the Word. We're going to need to be firmly rooted in it. The most important components of solid, committed, passionate, faithful, thriving, Biblically grounded marriages are solid, committed, passionate, faithful, thriving, biblically grounded Christians. So when we talk about marriage, oftentimes people want to hear principles and points and how-tos for how to have a happy marriage, how to have a growing marriage, how to, have, how to make this thing work. And always, 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 the simple answer is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You hold fast to the word of life. You be a thriving, biblically grounded, biblically rooted, committed, passionate Christian. That's step one, A, for having a thriving relationship of any kind, but certainly a thriving marriage relationship. I'm going to close with just a personal note. My wife's left the room, so um, this is not I'm not trying to earn points, although I will make her listen to the recording. Um, I, I can just tell you that uh, my wife is... A really, really excellent wife. Um, And she is a great mom. And she serves our home well, uh, tirelessly. But it's because she's a very faithful, committed, repenting, diligent Christian woman. In other words, as our marriage has developed over the last 22 years, it hasn't developed because we've figured out some kind of secret formula or she's adopted these, this neat little you know, wife's poem to living with a difficult man, or whatever. It's just a matter of faithfulness, personal, individual conviction and faithfulness. Because if you think about it, in the context of all human relationships, but most importantly and significantly in a marriage relationship, the need to be humble, to look out for the interests of others, to even be willing to die to yourself, on and on and on and on and on, that's going to become quite essential in that relationship instead of trying to figure out what you can do to get to where you want to go in some ideal of a a happy Christian home. So I just feel compelled to kind of put that in front of us as a starting point. We're really going to be looking at what we're called to individually in our, our Christian walk, which just so happens to put many of us in the context of Christian marriage. But even beyond that, for us to recognize what we need to hold up as God's, God's ideal before watching world. So I pray that God will use this study to encourage and enrich us, and, and I'm looking forward to kind of stepping into it further with you guys. Any final thoughts before we pray?